Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And to begin, we're happy to report that uh, Jim Garrity is back. He was off on Friday, thanks to Alexander DeSanctis for filling in. But, Jim, you've returned safely from Gettysburg. I I assume the the sixth graders behaved themselves and that the union still won. Correct on both counts. Um, A couple years ago, I chaperoned a class trip to Jamestown, Virginia, the first uh, uh, settlement in the United States. And on that bus trip, we had three kids barf on the way down. Uh, this year, we only had one. So I'm very proud of the fact that we've reduced our kids barfing on the bus rate by 66%. As far as I'm concerned, that makes it a triumph of a trip. I know, by the way, hopefully the kids did learn something along the way. So that's good, too. That would be good as well. Let's go to our good martini now, Jim. And we've talked about the possibility of this happening, although I don't think you or I actually thought it ever would. But it's still good to know it's official now. Baltimore Sun, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan announced Saturday he will not be challenging President Donald Trump in a Republican primary in the 2020 election. Hogan, the popular GOP governor in his second term governing a blue state, said that instead of running, he would be launching a national nonprofit advocacy organization called An America United. Quote, I truly appreciate all of the encouragement I received from people around the nation in urging me to consider making a run for president in 2020, Hogan said in a statement. However, I will not be a candidate. Instead, I am dedicated to serving my second term as Maryland governor and in my new role, leading America's governors as the incoming chairman of the National Governors Association. So, Jim, you got to appreciate this in a couple of different ways. Number one, he had a lot of people pushing him to get into this thing. I think some of the the never Trump crowd, (coughs) Crystal, uh, were really hoping that uh, Larry Hogan would get into this thing. And not only did he actually figure out what was best for him and his family and his state, He didn't go and make some grand sweeping video or public statement announcing that he wasn't going to do something. So having a little bit of humility, plus making a rational decision, which is probably ultimately good for the Republican Party in 2020, that's good. Yeah. I mean, look, I think you and I always had a certain amount of skepticism about this. Uh, He didn't seem like the kind of guy who wanted to go the full Kasich, so to speak. And again, I don't know if there's that much of a room there for a non-Trump Republican presidential candidate. Technically, William Weld is running as the pro-choice, anti-gun rights, you know, <laughs> the, the not Republican Republican uh, candidate in the Republican primary. So the, the question was, what was this going to get Larry Hogan, who has been, by most Maryland standards uh, and you know, most conservative standards, a good governor, maybe not a great governor. He's working with a very heavily Democratic state legislature. All in all, uh, I, I described you know Hogan as, as a, a hockey goalie. He stops bad ideas from being enacted. Maybe that's uh, enough for, for people to think about this person being running for president. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you might want to be there. But you know, at some point, the Republican Party might want to say, hey, what kind of a figure could win a bunch of blue states in the Northeast? And Larry Hogan is one of those few examples you can point to as a guy who managed to run on anti-tax hikes, less regulation, just generally good stewardship of government and not expanding it. And he did it in a state where Democrats overwhelmingly outnumber Republicans by I think like you know two to one or something like that. It's a very big margin there. So there's something worth looking at there. But again, I don't think that running against Trump in this primary was going to get him anything. I suppose we could you know maybe grumble a bit that maybe there was some cynicism to this. 
the question of whether Larry Hogan ever was really seriously thinking about this or whether he just knew that taking this position, a lot of people who otherwise would just not pay attention, he'd just be another governor. Now he's Larry Hogan, who might be challenging President Trump in the Republican primary for a good year and a half. I don't know about you, Greg. I could do without his new group. He's from. What was it? Americans for a Generic America? Was that what it was? <laughs> I feel like it's like the Judean People's Front, the People's Front for Judea, when you've got, no, we're Americans United. Well, we're United Americans. And I'm left wondering, what, what, so what are you going to do? We're going to unify the country. Uh, okay. Yeah, great. <laughs> but what is this, a, pa- a nonprofit? Uh, I guess so. Okay, good. So we need one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's tried that before. Big news, though, Jim. I've also seen over the weekend that John Kasich does not see a path to the presidency. I assume that means he's not running, but I'm pretty sure he didn't really see a path to the presidency three years ago either. So I don't know if we can completely shut the door on that. But it looks like it's welder bust for the anti-Trump crowd, at least at the moment. So I guess you're saying the son of a mailman just couldn't see delivery. <laughs> the other thing I wonder about is one of uh, what a person who's contributed to National Review and various other places, Jason A. Hart, Basically, since the moment John Kasich appeared on the scene and started watering down legislation that was coming out of a Republican state legislature in Ohio that was more conservative than Kasich was, Jason Hart has chased down Kasich the way Van Helsing chases vampires. (laughs) Jason Hart, every single day, frequently DMing me, frequently writing for any publication, showcasing that John Kasich, you know, whatever he was back in the 90s when he was on the House Budget Committee, that John Kasich had become... Uh, if not quite Charlie Crist or Arlen Specter, then he had become squishy, non-reforming, generic, uh, just just nothing particularly conservative about it. And then, of course, we've had, for the better part of the last four years, talk about him. Well, he might challenge Trump or he might run as an independent or something. You know, I think it's time for John Kasich to ride off into the sunset. If that means he's stuck on a CNN panel with two other folks... Great. You know, look, when you're governor of Ohio, are you going to get some consideration to be president of the United States? Yeah. The country gave him a look in 2016 and they weren't all that impressed. And he uh, stayed in the race until the very, very end, managed to ensure that Ted Cruz was never going to have a one on one race against uh, Trump, split the anti-Trump vote. And that's a big part of why we ended up where we are. So for, you know, John Kasich to keep lamenting what the Trump era has brought. John, you're a big reason we are in the position we're in. So um, good riddance. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, people learn lessons from this. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And the preamble to today's morning jolt is the on again, off again battles in the Twitter sphere and in columns about Who's the real problem on the right? Uh, Basically, if you look at uh, Crystal and his ilk, it's anybody who has managed to say a positive word about Trump at any point in the last four years. Uh, Some folks think you need to fight harder. Some folks think you need to uh, maintain your principles more. As David French, of course, uh, being in in the crosshairs of the opinion editor of the New York Post last week on that very point. The response from French, I thought, was excellent, as well as many of your colleagues at National Review. But, Jim, you take it in a different direction today. If you're wondering why things don't go as well as they could be on the right, it's not necessarily about uh, tone or messaging. It's a lot about who's making a lot of money and who's not getting their contributions to the candidates they think they ought to go to. It's a single-issue morning jolt, which is pretty rare. And I'll just uh, go through a few of the things that you point out here. In 2013, conservative strike force PAC raised $2.2 million in funds vowing to support Ken Cuccinelli's campaign for governor of Virginia. 
only 10,000 got to Cuccinelli. Back in 2015, right-wing news reviewed the financial filings of 21 prominent conservative PACs and found that the 10 groups at the bottom of their list spent $54.3 million, only paid out $3.6 million to help get Republicans elected. In 2016, the very ethical Roger Stone founded the Committee to Restore America's Greatness. It raised $587,000 and spent $16,000 on independent expenditures supporting Trump. 2016, the Great America Pact raised $28.6 million from donors. Less than 32000 got to federal candidates. And on and on it goes. The Put Vets First Pact raised $3.9 million in the 2018 cycle. 9000 got to uh, candidates. And there are many, many more examples here, Jim. You call it the grifters. The rights grifter problem is the title of the jolt today. And basically a tiny fraction of the money that people who are many times giving very much the very last bit of excess income that they have to try and get the right people elected are getting fleeced here. So how did we get in this problem and what do we do about it? Sure. Uh, this is not necessarily new, but in fact, I think we, I feel like we've seen a little bit of coverage of this about once a year. Uh, right wing news did a really good detailed look. Uh, Politico kind of added them up uh, back in 2014. I think the right wing news one was 2015. In fact, there was an interesting argument, basically, is this is what killed off the Tea Party movement. Uh, that, you know, that because there was no equivalent of the Republican National Committee, there was no Tea Party National Committee, um, that basically anybody could set up an organization saying, we're the Tea Party, and start raising money. And you'd send out, you know, some of this is the, uh, the proven effectiveness of past forms of fundraising, whether it's uh, the Richard Vigory style of direct mail, whether it's calling people up on the phone, whether it's... Uh, uh, email, whether it's social media, all these sorts of things where you basically say, we need your help to support this, you know, to win this fight. And this is not all that easy to distinguish from real campaigns, real organizations. One of the things that was kind of important in here is that, first of all, there's, there's two, two caveats that I will point out. One of the measuring sticks I used was how much, if, if the, the PAC collected a lot of money, how much of that did they end up sending along to the candidate that they said they were going to help? And in many cases, we're looking at 1%, 2%, 3%. A minuscule fraction is going to what they say they're trying to do, which strikes me as, you know, I, I, you know the term scam, I think is dishonest to say people, we're going to help elect these candidates and then use 1% of the money towards that. The other thing, which I thought was probably the most egregious example, were the people who were like, donate to us to help elect David Clark to the U.S. Senate from, from Wisconsin. David Clark wasn't running for Senate in Wisconsin. He said he didn't want to. But there's very, you know, at this point, there's nothing under the law that could say, you, you know, you can't say, well, we're going to draft him just in case he runs. We want you to give this money. We've seen this sort of thing for Laura Ingram in, in Virginia, uh, Alan West in Florida. Even though Alan West had moved to Texas, people were still collecting money saying, no, no, you got to give it to us because we're going to elect him to the Senate from Florida. Um, and I went through this. And there's a whole bunch of these examples. I think the Tea Party one's particularly egregious. Uh, but it evolved, the sort of thing evolved for the, uh, whatever issue comes down the pike, somebody can form a pack about, put vets first pack. Uh, 2018 cycle, they raised $3.9 million, $9,000 went to candidates. You know, the rest of the money got used for other stuff. Now, a lot of these packs can put the money on additional fundraising efforts. We're going to hire more people to make more calls. We're going to send out more emails, stuff like that. Not every non-donation expense is illegitimate. Uh, they they got to pay for the rent. they got to pay for electricity, cons- computers, the phone bill, all that kind of stuff. But you'd like to see that amount that's going either direct expenditures towards the candidates or efforts on behalf of the candidate to be as high as possible. And many of them had them nowhere near that. 
Now, the other thing that was kind of interesting here is, you know, you like to say, ah, you know, all the PACs do this. Uh, the right-wing news study, Club for Growth Action PAC, now, allegedly their establishment, no, I thought they were, uh, they strike me as pretty darn conservative, obviously focusing primarily on economic and tax issues. 88% went towards independent expenditures and direct contributions. Republican Main Street Partnership, allegedly the dastardly establishment, 78%. American Crossroads, they some group that's associated with Karl Rove, Ugh, the establishment, Ugh, 72%. So there's this narrative of, you know, oh, the corrupt establishment type spend all their money on consultants, but the authentic grassroots conservative organizations, no, it's exactly the opposite. Now, this doesn't mean that I, you know, you can love what Club for Growth, Republican Mainstream Partnership and American Crossroads are doing. You can hate what they're doing. You can prefer the candidates they back in primaries or you can oppose them. But one thing that they do is they actually spend the money on the candidates. And all these other groups that I listed today really didn't spend their money on the candidates. We, we get like one or two good stories on this a year. And I was like, you know what? Let's add up. And I just picked 2013. So this is when it really seemed to be uh, taking root here. All right, let's add up every single amount. And because Politico didn't say which groups they had done in their study, I couldn't tell whether their list overlapped with right-wing news. So if they do overlap and they're, with the sums that they talk about are exactly the same, then it means it's 2013 minimum $127 million have gone to these PACs. If they didn't overlap at all, it's $177 million. So let's split the difference. Let's say $147 million, $157 million like since 2013. Greg, could you imagine what could have been done if they had $147 million over the last couple of election cycles? if it had actually gone to the campaigns and actually been used for something useful instead of lining the pockets of these guys who are forming these packs, I think you very easily could have kept the house. I, I went, I ran the numbers, I put it out there. You know, if you'd spent like $500,000 on each one of these districts on get out the vote, you could have saved Mia Love's seat. You could have saved Karen Handel's seat in Georgia. You could have saved some of those seats in California. Could you have kept the house? All right, maybe a couple of those last couple, maybe an extra 500 grand wouldn't have made a difference. But you know what? If Republicans had done just two and a quarter percent better in those districts, they would have kept 13 of them. And so we would need to flip six seats in 2020 instead of having to flip 19 seats. And that's that's why we are where we are. So David French or Amani, you know, I don't care. <laughs> or at least the writer who pissed you off this morning is not the biggest problem facing conservatism. I know that there is a lot of people might want to pretend that because it's a lot of fun to write columns saying this columnist is a big duty head, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what actually makes a difference. That's not what wins races. That's not what gets laws passed. We don't have a Republican House because these guys are taking money and putting it in their own pockets instead of spending it on the candidates. And now Donald Trump's going to spend two years of his presidency on defense. And we're hoping to win back the House in 2020. No guarantees. I don't know if it was in the, the piece or in a, in a tweet that you put out subsequently for those who think that, oh, well, I'm sure the left does this too. No, they don't, at least not no. nearly to the same percentage. They're actually interested in winning races and changing policies that make us want to feel like the kid on the bus to Gettysburg, but they're at least doing what they said they're going to do. <laughs> if you're looking for a silver lining to the response to this piece, uh, Greg, it's that apparently some liberal grifters are getting in on the game. So at least there's a sign <laughs> okay. for hope there. Uh, <laughs> people are forming fraudulent organizations or, or you know, Groups like that on their side. So fine. hopefully the, the, the level of grift will equal out and we'll each have a, each side will have the same disadvantage. Oh, good. Um, but look, they've had a huge success with this thing called Act Blue. Any campaign that's the federal level or a whole bunch of state levels can use it. 
if you donate through ActBlue, which is obviously a web gadget, and it's designed to maximize online fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. ActBlue takes, you know how much they use for processing the cost? 3.9%. So 96% is going directly to the campaign. Now, there's been an attempt to create a Republican version of this, and there's been some success with that, but it's got, obviously the Republicans are trying to play catch up here. But again, you know, why do we not win races we are supposed to win? Because our donor base, little old, some people, one guy complained about my depiction of it as little old ladies. And yes, the conservative donor base isn't only little old ladies writing their checks with their, with their shaky hands. But that's, you know, who, who are the conservative grassroots, right? I mean, generally it's older Americans. Generally it's in the South and the Midwest. Are there exceptions? Sure, absolutely. There's plenty of them. But by and large, the conservative donor base is getting deluged with this mail saying, if you don't donate to us right now, the country as we know it will collapse. And so they go, oh, my goodness, well, I better write a check. And they do. And the money goes to some consultant's pocket instead of actually being spent on electing candidates like they promised. So what's holding back conservative? That's what's holding back conservatism. Not David French, the, the average pundit either on TV or on the web or in the newspaper or in the magazine somewhere is not what's holding back conservatism. And all of this is because this is a much easier target for people to go after rather than these scam packs that are costing the conservative movement tens of millions of dollars a day. Rah! You can tell I'm just ready to flip out over this. Story. Yes. Excellently said. Rant fully justified. Read the jolt if you haven't already today. Although Jim just did an excellent job summarizing uh, the problem here. I don't know if this is the perfect time or the worst possible time to point out that uh, donations to Radio America and National Review are well spent. Somebody had said, what about uh, Project Veritas by James O'Keefe? Now, whether you love those guys or hate those guys, you, you see what you get for them, right? The hidden camera work. They, they, they put out their stuff. You know, is a donation to National Review a good idea? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope you think so. But you, know, you can see it in the magazine and in the website that we put out every single day, morning, noon, and night, every weekday and on weekends. The National Review Institute, the events it puts on. You know, If you can't see what an organization is putting out for your money, that's when you should ask questions. And oh, by the way, all this stuff is coming from their filings with the IRS when they lay out their expenditures. But David Bossie got called out on this. He was, by the way, he's Trump's deputy campaign manager. And he saw a great opportunity to make a lot of money in this. So he created, created this organization. And let's see how much he spent over two years. Okay. Uh, in 2017, 2018, they raised $18.5 million. And they said they were going to support state and local candidates who backed the Trump agenda. And you know they went to how much went to direct political activity? $425,000. A little more than that. 3%. 3% went to direct political activity, 97% went to everything else. And of course, when he gets called out on this, his explanation is, ah, you know, here we go with the uh, fake news brought to you by a collaboration of the biased liberal media and unabashed left-wing activists. This is all based on the IRS forms that he submits. And oh, by the way, this is not something that the IRS leaked or anything like that. All of this stuff is publicly accessible because they're a public organization taking funds from the general public. They have to disclose this stuff. So the Form 990 and the Form 8872. People are going to say, like, my God, what happened to Jim over this weekend? Trip must have stressed the heck out of him. Let's see if we can find a little bit of mirth here in the crazy martini. Jim, it was the California Democratic Convention over the weekend and perhaps a couple of days before that. And uh, presidential candidates were there, one of which is former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, who's already gone way out on a limb by declaring himself a capitalist. Uh, he also desperately wants Donald Trump to not be president anymore. But he thinks that uh, going hardcore left is not the way to achieve that. So here is John Hickenlooper on Saturday 
having the bravery to tell a bunch of California Democratic delegates that socialism is not the right response to Trump. And listen to the response. If we want to beat Donald Trump and achieve big progressive goals, socialism is not the answer. I was reelected. I was reelected in a purple state in 2014, one of the worst years for Democrats in a quarter century. I was, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to end up helping to reelect the worst president in American history. He kept going, they kept booing. We shouldn't try to achieve universal coverage by removing private insurance from over 150 million Americans. We should not try to tackle climate change by guaranteeing every American a government job. Hold on, hold on. As the Democratic Party, we have to create a vision for this country. I want to give Americans a reason to look forward to tomorrow. Boo, vision. Yay, free stuff. (laughs) So, Greg, I don't know about you, but if someone put a gun to my head and said you had to vote for a Democratic presidential candidate, I would do my best to disarm them. (laughs) But if that was not an option, I might, I probably would go with Hickenlooper. And of course, you know, this kind word will probably doom him. Um, Not because Hickenlooper is really a conservative by any stretch of the imagination, but you look at his record as governor. I wrote up a a 20 things column about him earlier this year. And Hickenlooper, I think it's safe to say, is not a terribly partisan guy. He He used to run a brewery, used to run a bar. He's amiable. He wants to be nice. So the current atmosphere of destroy the Trump administration doesn't really fit him and his persona and his style. And for much of his governorship, you know, Colorado was kind of your classic purple state. So he he was very soft edged as far as Democrats go. I I don't know if you can quite say he was a centrist. I do think you can say that he was a lot more comfortable with a Republican controlled state legislature where he could veto stuff that he thought was going too far. Then when a Democratic state, when Democrats took over the state legislature two years before he left office, and all of a sudden they're sending stuff his way that he's supposed to support as a Democrat, but I'd argue in his gut he didn't necessarily uh, support. And a couple of gun control laws come to mind when we're talking about that. And by the way, in not every case did Hickenlooper have the the wherewithal or the guts to veto them. <laughs> this is not you. Know, he, he's got some big flaws, but at least he's like not completely separated and disassociated with with you know mainstream America or apolitical America, or non-liberal America. Um, He's kind of got this corny, goofy sense of humor. And so I just think in this Democratic presidential primary, Greg, he's going to be like Charlie Brown. I mean, he's just going to go out there, and people are going to hate him every single time for daring to tell them things they don't want to, you know. Like, remember when Jonathan Chait was saying that we were making up the threat of socialism? Yeah. And how much Democrats wanted socialism. This guy has the audacity to say socialism is not the answer. And think about it. Think about it. And, and, you know, when you go to a political gathering and you say something the audience doesn't like, sometimes they'll sometimes they just kind of sit on their hands. There's just awkward silence that greets what's supposed to be an applause line. But in this case, they booed him. Right. They are angry that he has the audacity to tell them that socialism is not the answer. And if we enact, it's not going to give them everything. And then we can't give everybody a job and, and simultaneously take care of climate change and, and unicorns and rainbows and all that kind of stuff. Um, so look, maybe there's a little bit of a strategy to this, that there's not a particularly big chunk of the uh, Democratic presidential primary electorate that's less liberal, less progressive, centrist, conservative, whatever you know term you want to use there. 
But let's you know, let you know, either Biden falters, he goes out in a, on the debate stage and does terribly. Maybe Hickenlooper's got a shot at that. I don't know if that'll be enough. The scenario of Hickenlooper winning the nomination generally involves at least one meteorite hitting a debate stage <laughs> uh, and wiping out a good chunk of the rest of the field. But, you know, I mean, like, you put Hickenlooper up against um, Swalwell and... Uh, Castro or... Castro. Okay, yeah, you know, Castro, uh, Jenkins... Schmidlap, uh, all those guys. I made up some of them. Don't sleep on Schmidlap. Like half the listeners right now are like, wait, wait, did somebody, else, Irving Schmidlap really jumped in? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, but so, so first of all, a little bit of good for you, John Hickenlooper. And isn't it crazy that saying socialism is not the answer is now not just not an applause line amongst Democrats. It is a line that gets you booed, at least in California. And not just uh, a grumbling. It's like the yeah. whole next paragraph or two, he was drowned out by these things. So they're uh, they're very serious about this. I'm not sure they really know what it means. All they think is that it means they get free stuff and they don't think about the consequences. So there's your base. There's your fervent activists inside the Democratic Party. So you got your nut jobs on the floor of the California Democratic Convention and your grifter is running all these uh, nonprofits on the right. So uh, happy day, America. Enjoy. Thank God it's Friday, right, Greg? (laughs) This happens way too often on Mondays. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. He's also the author of Between Two Scorpions, which comes out next week. So make sure you order your pre-copy on that. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And tune in again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.